Here we go this morning. Would you open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1? Colossians 1, we'll look at 24 through 29. And uh, just by way of reminder, it's been a couple of weeks. We mentioned last time in our verses in Colossians 1 uh, that there's no such thing as a doctrine of purgatory or a place uh, of purgatory. And this morning, we're going to find a misinterpreted verse that many use to substantiate that claim. But purgatory is false teaching. Hello? Purgatory is false teaching. Why do we know that? Well, because the Bible says so. In 2 Corinthians 5.8, it says, We're confident, yes, well, pleased rather, to be absent from the body and to be what? Present with the Lord. Also, Hebrews 9.27 says, And as it is appointed for men to die once and be reincarnated. No, it says die once, but after this, what? The judgment. What the Bible actually teaches is that when the believer dies, they go directly into the presence of the Lord, awaiting a time where they are reunited with their resurrected body, when the dead in Christ rise and meet those who are alive and remain in the air to forever be with the Lord. And then when the non-believer dies, they go to Hades, awaiting the second resurrection, when they too are bodily resurrected and reunited with their bodies. Yet they will stand before the great white throne judgment for final judgment and sentencing. That's what the Bible teaches. Now, in Colossians 1, 19-20, we found that it pleased the Father that in Him, Jesus, all the fullness should dwell, and by Him to reconcile all things to Himself. By Him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of the cross. Now, we made mention last time that Philippians 2.10 uses that same phrase, with a single addition. He talks about reconciling things by himself here in Colossians, things in heaven and things on earth. And then he adds in Philippians 2.10, things under the earth. Now, why did Paul omit that, that particular phrase here in Colossians 1.19 and 20? Because Paul was addressing the issue of salvation. And once you're in the grave, you can't be saved. Your eternal destiny is already sealed. So we made the point, only before death can eternal destinies be decided. Now, we also made the rather obvious point, and uh, spent a little time on this, that every born-again Christian is a new creation. That's better than that. Every born-again Christian is a new creation. Now, Paul said, hey, we were once alienated and enemies of God by wicked works, but now, through Christ's physical body, through death, we're holy. We're blameless. We're above reproach in God's sight. Now, we mentioned a couple of weeks back that the famed passage of 2 Corinthians 5.17, from which we drew our point, obviously, that the word creation means an original formation, or it can mean something completely new. And the great part about that is we are not just a renovated, inferior product when we come to Christ. We are something completely new. We are an original formation, so to speak. Now, in Colossians 1.23, Paul gave this qualifier. He said, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now, it is interesting that we live in an age where many people are comfortable with redefining the Christian faith and the principles and precepts that we hold to be dear and believe in and adhere to. Uh, continuing in the faith, so to speak. And what we reminded ourselves of in our last point last time was the only one qualified to amend the gospel 
is God. The only one qualified to amend the gospel is God. And he hasn't, so we shouldn't. Uh, we're, we're incapable. We don't have the capacity to do such a thing, nor do we have the right. Because this is God's world. And he said, Paul also in verse 19 of the same chapter, that Christ has preeminence in all things. In other words, he has first place authority over everything. And, that, and since Jesus, as we made the point, is the word, the word of God therefore stands fast. It doesn't change. So we are to continue in it as new creations in Christ. Now, this morning, Paul's going to switch gears a bit. He's going to move from the work of Christ in saving us to serving Christ as those he has saved. Now, he'll start by mentioning his own ministry and then the mystery revealed through the church and then the mystery of the church and thus every Christian or the ministry of the church and thus of every Christian. Now, our title is a bit unusual this morning. And uh, I, I've never seen a bumper sticker or a T-shirt, a Christian T-shirt or sticker uh, with this particular title on it. But it is what the Bible says we are. And that is a peculiar people. <laughs> that is our title this morning, a peculiar people. Now, listen, peculiar is not Greek for weirdo. Although there's a weirdo or two that God has saved. Aren't you glad for that? And listen, this may not be a coveted title among the many we'd hang over our lives. We like stuff like the strong and the mighty. We like things like that. But the Bible says we're a peculiar people. And I think that our perspective is going to change a little bit when we see the meaning and the blessings of our peculiarity. Now, in Titus 2, 11 to 14, Paul wrote to Titus, the young pastor, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that, Denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Might I mention Jesus is coming again. Amen. Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own, what kind of people? Special people, zealous for good works. Now, the word special in the King Jimmy is translated as peculiar. And if we consider what precedes this moniker being special or peculiar, we can raise our understanding of what it means to be amongst the peculiar people. And the peculiar, at least in God's economy, are people redeemed from every lawless deed. The peculiar are the purified. The peculiar are those who are zealous for good works as God's people. Now, Peter would say this in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own, what kind of people? Special. special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. And again, in the King James, the word special is translated as peculiar. But the interesting thing is what Paul wrote to Titus and what Peter wrote in his first letter are two different words translated as special or peculiar in the particular translations. Now, the Greek word that Paul used in describing Christians as being special or peculiar means being beyond the usual. The word peculiar means being beyond the usual. Now, I like what Peter uses. The word that he uses is translated as special or peculiar means a purchased possession. We are being beyond the unusual. We are not like everybody else 
because we have been bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. So we can be these new creations that we talked about a couple of weeks ago and we'll mention again in another form this morning. Now, one thing I like about being a purchased possession and being beyond the usual is the Lord never returns things He's purchased. He doesn't ask for a refund. Oh, I don't know. I shouldn't have bought this one. Aren't you glad that's not His attitude? And that means that the whole of our Christian life can and should be lived as someone being beyond the usual because we are His purchased possession. Now, Paul would say something else, and, and just to wrap up our lengthy introduction this morning, he would say something that's of importance in 1 Corinthians 3. He said, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual people, but as carnal, as babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you're still not able, for you are carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like what? mere men. I love the implication there. Even though it's a negative development in the church that Paul is addressing, he tells the Corinthian Christians that their behavior is that of mere men, which implies they are not. We are not just mere human beings as members of the body of Christ. We are beyond the usual and among the peculiar people of God, and we and they should act like it, not like the people of the world who are carnal. So, Let's dig in and find out more about how peculiar we really are. If you would stand and read with me, please, from Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 through 29. Colossians 1, 24. I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. The mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them God will to make known what are the riches of the glory of the mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. God, that is our request and prayer this morning, that you work in us mightily in these last days. And Lord, I, I pray this morning that we come away with a better understanding and embracing of what you died to make us. Even in this uh, unusual title for us and the term we may not quickly embrace, may we see the beauty of it and walk in it all the days of our lives until you come for us. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Our first peculiarity as Christians will come from verse 24, which happens to be the verse that is misinterpreted by many as a proof text of after-death suffering and purgatory as a form of spiritual purification, readying someone for heaven. Now, Paul says that he fills up his sufferings in the flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Now, that does not mean in any way, shape, or form that the sufferings of Jesus were not sufficient to cover all sin. That's not what it means. And it doesn't mean that there is a place of afterlife suffering or after-death suffering that can further purify you and make you ready for heaven. Paul interprets what he means in the same verse 
when he says his sufferings are for the sake of the body of Christ, which is the church, of which he became a minister. And let me just say this again this morning. There is no such thing or place as purgatory. Doesn't exist. It's a false doctrine, and the place uh, does not exist after you die. You either go to Hades and await the great white throne judgment, or you go into the presence of the Lord forever and ever, somebody say. Amen. Now, I think it's important we also remember that Paul is writing either from house arrest in Rome, and the, the commentators are divided on where he's actually writing from, whether he's writing from his two-year house arrest in Rome, or the final phase of awaiting his trial before Caesar Nero, when they would transfer prisoners to the Mamertine prison, which was more like a dungeon than his previous uh, uh, habitation, so to speak. And either way, whether he's chained between two Roman guards under house arrest or whether he's in the Mamertine prison, he's suffering. And that's what Paul is saying. And he likens his suffering and his calling to his stewardship from God. Now, a steward was a household servant who would be in charge of the master's goods, both the distribution of them uh, in conducting business for the household. He would also see to the responsibilities of the other servants of the master, and he cared for them and watched over all that the master had. And Paul would use this illustration in 1 Corinthians in 4, 1 and 2, where he would say, let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and what? Stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. Now, Paul says his current suffering is in direct relationship to his stewardship of making sure the word of God was being fulfilled in them. In other words, that they were hearing the truth and the gospel that makes men free. Now, in 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul would tell this young pastor, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will what? Suffer persecution. Now, this broadens the scope of Paul's statements here in that suffering is not limited to people called to be stewards. Suffering is something that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will experience. Now, that doesn't give us the warm fuzzies, does it? But it's true, right? So shouldn't we be preparing for this and, and getting our minds stable through and on the Word of God in, in seasons that we all go through? And I think collectively the church has had it for a time of suffering uh, that it's not experienced since the first century. And listen, we know that there are those who suffer who are not Christians. People suffer tragedy and all those other things. We know there are people today who suffer for their national identity or ethnicity. ethnicity. That's going on in the world today. We know there are people who suffer persecution for their non-Christian religious beliefs. If you look at what's going on in India right now, Hindus are persecuting Muslims. Muslims are persecuting uh, Hindus. And this, you know, all is uh, changing people's lives, and it's a negative experience. But the thing that makes it peculiar to the Christian suffering persecution, that is, is first, it's part of the package. We're told that in advance. Everybody, you want to live godly? You're going to suffer persecution. You want to do what's right before God? You're going to be persecuted. You're going to be persecuted for his name's sake. And in the Beatitudes, Jesus said, hey, you're blessed. Blessed are you if they revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. And he talks about that this is a commonality down through the ages, for they treated the prophets in the same manner. And secondly, the other thing that makes it peculiar for we as the body of Christ, and most importantly, might I say, is when we suffer 
persecution, we rejoice. That's very peculiar, isn't it? It's, I know that's all of your default response. Whenever you suffer, you immediately begin to rejoice. But, you know, even if we have to get there eventually, even if we have to, if we have to crawl there, that's where we should be headed when times of suffering come. Sometimes it's tough to work your way through mentally and, and emotionally something that God has allowed. Anybody know what I'm talking about here? Sometimes it's tough to get there. Sometimes it's hard to maneuver into that place where you say, you know what, that Romans 8.28 thing, that's mine. All things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. And then you have to pair that with all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Look at this example from Acts 5. And they agreed with him. And I didn't want to read too much this morning, but there was a previous portion of this conversation when Gamaliel, a respected rabbi in Israel, said to those who were persecuting the apostles, you know what? People come and go. We got people claiming some extra revelation all the time. And you know what? Just leave it alone and they'll go away. But you know what? If it's actually from God, we don't want to fight against it. And they agreed with him. And when they had called, this, this is kind of one of those uh, semi-comical phrases here. Uh, and when they had called for the apostles and beaten him, Gamaliel says, leave him alone. Okay, we're going to beat him first though. <laughs> they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they, the apostles, departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. This is a word for the church in 2022. Do not cease preaching and teaching Jesus as the Christ. Doesn't matter what the world tells us to do. Doesn't matter how the government wants to restrict us. Doesn't matter how they threaten us. It doesn't matter how we suffer persecution. Do not cease preaching Christ. That is the whole reason we're here. Otherwise, why would the Lord leave us on this giant messed up dirt cloth? Why wouldn't he just save us and take us home? Because there's a reason for our existence, and that is preaching Christ crucified. Now, Peter would say this, and I can't help but think, and you know, God allowed some room for the personal experiences of the apostles when they held the pen and the Spirit-inspired words to be written down. And I think that it's pretty likely that Peter was thinking back on that Acts 5 scenario when he said this, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. The apostles were beaten, yet they were rejoicing. They rejoiced in the fact that they were counted worthy to suffer like Jesus. And Peter later said, hey, you know, when trials come, don't think there's something weird that's outside the normal experience of the Christian. Because if you want to live godly, as we read earlier, as Paul wrote, you're going to suffer persecution. And therefore, your response is to be rejoiced that you partake in suffering as Jesus did. Now, listen, you peculiar people this morning. Here's what we need to note from our first section as someone who is being beyond the usual because we are a purchased possession. Listen. Christians handle everything differently than the world. Christians handle everything differently than the world. Now, obviously, we're talking about spiritual and, and to a degree, the emotional realm. And we still have to fill our cars with gas or maybe get a quarter tank or something. 
we still have to pay our rent and mortgage by groceries and all that stuff, right? But when it comes to the hard stuff, when it comes to the stuff that needs something extra, we face things completely different than the world, and here's why. The psalmist said in 121, 1 and 2, I will lift up my eyes to the hills. From whence comes my help? My help comes from the Lord who made what? Heaven and earth. Can the non-believer look to that? No. All they can do is look to the gospel and be saved. And this becomes theirs to appropriate as well. To lift their eyes to the hills, to where a source of help who has the capacity to make heaven and earth is available to us. We have help the world doesn't have. And think about what's going on right now with this egalitarian thinking and the equality movement. And the goal of the world right now, world leaders, is to eliminate all suffering by making everyone have an equal life experience. Well, they're going to fail. And as Christians, we're told you're going to suffer. And suffering for Christ's sake is for a cause of rejoicing. The world's trying to end suffering. The Bible tells us we're going to suffer. We're a peculiar people. I ran across this story I wanted to share with you this morning, one of the commentaries. And it's a story of a woman named Dr. Helen Roosevelt. She was a British doctor, served 12 years in Zaire, had a, a wonderful time serving as the only doctor in an area of a half a million people. One doctor, half a million people, one doctor. 1964, a revolution broke out in Zaire. She and her co-workers were thrown into five and a half months of unbelievable brutality and torture. And her record goes on to say, her story rather, it says, on one occasion, Dr. Rosevere was on the verge of being executed. A 17-year-old student came to her defense and was savagely beaten as a result. He was kicked about like a football and left for dead. And Dr. Rosevere was sick. For a moment, she thought God had forsaken her, even though she didn't doubt his reality. But then God stepped in. He overwhelmed her with a sense of his own presence. And he said something like this into her heart and mind. 20 years ago, you asked me for the privilege of being a missionary. You asked me for the privilege of being identified with me. These aren't your sufferings. These are my sufferings. That hit her with a force that she said she was overcome with a great sense of privilege to suffer for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen, we have to remember the, the whole Damascus Road experience with Saul, who became Paul, when he was overcome by the light and fell down to the ground. And heard the voice say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Listen, when we suffer for the Lord, it's the Lord who's being persecuted. It's the Lord who's under attack because we're his peculiar people. And listen, Satan's goal in persecuting us and inspiring people to do so is to get us to quit. And God says, when you're suffering persecution, don't quit, rejoice. You have a stewardship from God. I don't know why it got so quiet here when we're talking about suffering all of a sudden, but well, yeah, actually I do. Now, look at 26 and 27 again. As Paul would say, the mystery, he moves now from his ministry uh, to the church. The mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to the saints. To them God will to make known what are the riches of the glory of the mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, the mystery Paul is talking about is that of the church. And the to them points back to verse 24. The them is his body, which is the church, verse 24 says. 
the specifics of it and the mystery are that the Gentiles and Jews would be on equal footing as the body of Christ. And he says the shared glory of this mystery is Christ in us who is the hope of glory. Now he would remind the Ephesians in 2, 14 to 18 that he, Jesus himself, is our peace who has made both Jew and Gentile what? What has he made them? One. And has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law, the commandments, contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, Jew and Gentile, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached to you who were afar off, and to those who were near, for through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Now, a mystery simply means a hidden thing or something secret. And it was always God's plan to save the Gentiles, and that's recorded in the Old Testament. And the hidden thing was that the church age was going to bring the Jew and Gentile on equal footing before God. Because in Old Testament times, when a Gentile would convert to Judaism, they didn't have equal status as a naturally born Jew. They were a second-class citizen. Well, the church not only made them equal, the church made them one. And the phrase afar off is something that the Jews would use in reference to the spiritual state of the Gentiles. And those who were near, of course, would be the Jews nearer to God. Now here Paul says, what was hidden for ages is now revealed for generations in the church. And he mentions what is exclusive to the church, which is Christ living in us. Then in 1 Thessalonians, he would say in 2.19-20, For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you? In the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming. Did I mention Jesus is coming again? For you are our glory and joy. And he would say later in, in chapter 5, 23 to 24, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you how? Completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Now, I wanted to read those two verses for this reason. Paul had never been to Colossae. He never visited the church there. But he wrote them with the same love and compassion that he wrote the church of Thessaloniki, who he was very familiar with and had spent time with. Now what that tells us and should remind us of is that there is only one church. All born-again believers comprise the one church. Doesn't matter what kind of sign you throw up on the outside of the building, or I guess the SBC is meeting in uh, Southern Baptist Convention is meeting in Anaheim uh, for the next couple of days sometime uh, this week, and other denominations. Listen, there's one church. Why? Because there's one hope, and there's one faith, and there's one baptism, and there's one God who is above all and in you all. There's only one church, and it's born again believers. And the mystery of Christ in us brings us to our next peculiarity of a people group known as the church. And that's this. Listen, this is just completely simple, but I think you'll find it to be not just true, but deeper than what we read on the surface. Listen this morning. Christians are the only people who can actually change. Christians are the only people who can actually change. And that's what the church did. The church changed the status of two people groups. Now, it happened through the regeneration and the gift of the Holy Spirit and Christ being in us. 
And listen, there are lots of unsaved people who bring themselves under discipline to control a bad habit or make a lifestyle change for their health. Go on a diet, you know, you, there's thousands of them, millions during uh, January every year. But only the Christian is born again. Only the Christian is a new creation, meaning an original formation. Something and therefore someone who is completely new. That is exclusive to you and I. Now listen, I want you to think about all the things we're hearing from the world today and what they're after. The world is after what only knowing Christ can do. They want a world under a singular control system. They want people to be equal in opportunity and outcome. They want racism to end, violence to end. They want a world without borders where all people get along. The problem is they don't want God in the equation, therefore the plan is not going to work. They're after what Christianity alone can do without Christianity. They want fallen, fallible people in charge. I don't know. I, I'm thinking that God has a better plan. Now think about Acts 2, 42 to 45. They, the church, continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine of fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now, all who believed were what? Together. Together. And they had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. Now, this is not promoting communal living as Christians, but what it is promoting is the attitude that all Christians ought to have. You know what? There's a need around me and I need to figure out a way to meet it. If at all possible, you know, to uh, make sure that those around you who are in desperate straits, you know, dire straits. I, I saw an article the other day uh, of a, a gentleman. I'm not sure of what belief system he was. I don't think he was a Sikh, uh, but he was obviously from India and, uh, and his religious system uh, caused him, he owned a gas station and he was selling gas for 50 cents a gallon under what he paid for it because he wanted to help people. And you know, this is what we ought to be known for. Sacrificial living, sacrificial giving, doing things that help the people around us. This is what the body of Christ, the peculiar people, are all about. And, and this life is being beyond the usual as purchased possession is well described there in Acts chapter 2, 42 to 45. And what the world is trying to force on mankind comes naturally to the born-again believer because we care for one another. Racism, racism is not within our new nature. And, you know, I like the old saying, you know, Jesus cleans his fish after he catches them. I like that, don't you? But I think what we need to back that up with is that Jesus does clean his fish. All of them. And you're going to be different after you come to know Christ. And, you know, that progression may be quick for some and not so quick for others. And we all have things that we're going to fight with. That's why Paul said in, in Philippians 1, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ, because that's how long it's going to take to fix you. And me, right? And only when we see him will we be like him. We don't believe in the doctrine of perfectionism, that you can achieve absolute perfection in this life. That does await us, but it's going to take a supernatural transition, which for us, I believe, is going to happen in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. And today be a good day for that. Amen. Listen, the church is one new man. There's no races in the church. There's no skin tone distinctions in the church. There's just one people covered by the blood of Jesus. And we're all the same. 
in Christ Jesus. It's like the old saying, you know, the, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And when we become believers, we become a peculiar people in this world. We care for one another. We're not racist. We're continuing steadfastly in apostolic doctrines and fellowship because of one reason and one reason only, and that's Ephesians 2. And you, he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. That's when we become different. In which you once walked according to the course of this world. Now here's a change implied. According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all conducted once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of what? Wrath, just as the others. Now, it seems pretty obvious to me that being made alive implies you were dead. And everybody who's born is born spiritually dead. And only the Christian can experience being made alive in Christ or becoming spiritually alive. That's what makes us a peculiar people. And that's why I say only Christians can actually change. You know, people today are saying, you know what, if you want to be a boy or a girl, you could just decide which camp you're in. And uh, your chromosomal arrangement and all that stuff, biology has nothing to do with it. If that's how you feel, that's what you are. No, that's not true. Real change, radical change, dramatic change can only come, and it's not a change of gender. When you become a Christian, you're going to say, oh, you know what? God made a male and female. That's the end of the gender list. That's what Christians say. That's what Christians believe. We're not trying to uh, open our arms to be, uh, what is that phrase that some church, oh, we're an affirming church. Really? What are you affirming? Christ and him crucified? Or what the world thinks and wants you to teach. Well, we know the latter is usually the case. Now listen, it's also necessary that you and I remember the world's reaction to our peculiarity. In Mark 13, 13, Jesus said, everybody's going to love you because you know me. <laughs> know what he said? You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end will be saved. And he made the observation of Matthew 10, 16, Sending out his disciples, behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of what? Wolves, therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Now, is the attitude towards Christianity changing? Is the world looking at us through suspicious eyes? Absolutely. Do they see us as the adversary? Absolutely. Two articles from this past week. I'll just read you the headline. One came from Politico. And it says, it's time to talk about violent Christian extremism. I'm sorry, if you're talking Christianity, you cannot group those words together. Because we are not violent extremists. Now, we're not pacifists either, but we're not violent extremists. And the article, the subtitle said, there's a strong authoritarian streak that runs through parts of American evangelicalism. Now, they were talking about QAnon and things like that. But listen, they're throwing us under the bus as a group. We are not QAnon. That is not Christianity. That's not where we get our direction. We get our direction from God. Amen. And also Time Magazine ran this story. It said it's time to stop giving Christianity a pass on white supremacy and violence. And again, you can't group those words together. Because Christianity is not white supremacy. And just because some lunatic kills people and claims to be a Christian doesn't mean he is. A Christian means Christ-like. And that's nothing like Christ. 
And Jesus said, they hated me without a cause. They're going to hate you the same way. They don't want a peculiar people in the world. They want unregenerate, go with the flow, do what you're told, see all beliefs as equal, and all sexual preferences as valid, mindless robots who believe that the government is God. That's what they want today. Well, the peculiar people say, no thanks. There's but one God, and he sits on high above all. Listen, they will never achieve their goals because their plan is against God. Only God can bring down middle walls of separation. Listen, you can negotiate Abraham Accords and all that stuff, but I'll tell you what, when a Palestinian Christian becomes born again, they start loving the Jews, even though they were raised to hate them. That's what God can do. Abraham Accords can't do that. Nothing can change the human heart, which is the real change that we're talking about here today. God brings down middle walls that separate us as, as humans and makes us one with him and therefore each other. And apart from him, it can't happen. Because all of that's the realm of the flesh, which only leads to death. Christians, maybe our point makes more sense now. Christians are the only people who can actually change. Now, look at our last pair of verses, 28 and 29. Paul then says, and now he's talked about his ministry, the church's existence, and now our ministry. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. Now, remember the word perfect means complete or mature in mental and moral character. Now, Paul implies here that the only way to achieve that goal is preaching Christ and warning and teaching every person in the wisdom we have from God and therefore his word. Now, he also notes that this, is an, uh, this end result requires labor and striving, which he describes as applying the power we have in Christ working through us. Now, Hebrews reminds us in 6, 10 to 12, God is not unjust. Boy, aren't you glad for that? He is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until when? The end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This labor of love is what Paul wrote of here. The labor of love that we are to engage in is warning every man and teaching every man. And this thrice repeating of the phrase, every man cannot be overlooked because it gives us the scope of our mission field. We preach Christ, we warn every man, we teach every man, we preach Christ and Him crucified to every man. And this order listed here is important as well. You warn, then you teach. What is it we are to warn every man of? Well, Ezekiel 3, 18 and 19 says, When I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, there's the warning. And you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life. That same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I'll require at your hand. Yet if you do warn the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness, nor from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your what? Your soul. Now, I think in the New Testament we could better understand it through something we read often. I think we read it last week or before, week before. So I'm not going to read it again this way. I'll just remind you of what Jesus said when he closed the Sermon on the Mount about people who call him Lord, Lord. And say, didn't we do many things in your name? And he will say, depart from me, I never 
knew you. We had no relationship. Now, the interesting thing about that is that everything they mentioned to Jesus, they believed would justify their entrance into heaven, was all the experiential stuff many people are infatuated with today. And they claimed in Matthew 7 that we have done many things in your name. Prophesied, cast out demons, done many wonders. And of course, those are biblical things, right? But there's no mention of them warning people. There's no mention of them saying, you know what? You better turn from your wicked ways and live. There's no mention of them mentioning the eternal destiny because of people's natural sin nature that we're all born with, and thus the hope of reconciliation with God through Jesus. It's just, you know, we did this, we did this, we did this, and that's the problem. They took credit for the work. We're getting the primary ministry of the Holy Spirit. Jesus talked about in John 16. He said, telling his disciples, Now I go away to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I've said these things, he just told them he's going to die. Sorrows filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict. He will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment of sin because of sin because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness because I go to my father and you see me no more. Of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Not going to be. He is. He lost at the cross. Amen. Now, there are a lot of people in churches today who are more concerned about how church makes them feel. Some like being told they're a champion. Well, who doesn't like that? I mean, that's a good thing, right? You're a champion. Well, you know what? We come here, according to the Bible, according to Ephesians chapter 4, to be equipped for the work of ministry. And others want to have some other type of experience and you know, one of the things I'm, I'm anxious to get into our new sanctuary, you know, I, I think I mentioned this. I may not have mentioned it to every service, but we've already seen our sanctuary. It's modeled after another church out in Ukaipa. We've walked it. We've seen it, how everything works, and, and it's, it's going to be fabulous. Smoke machines and mirrors and laser. <laughs> <laughs> there, there won't be any of that, but there will be a... An awesome sound system for our awesome worship team and, and things like that. And listen, there are so many things happening today. We have people claiming that they can teach you what the Holy Spirit says he assigns. You can go to the School of Miracles. You can go learn how to be a prophet. Well, those are offices that God appoints. And, and you know what? If he doesn't want you to have it, you ain't going to get it. No matter how long you go to school or class. Now, in the midst of all we see today, and the church is defecting from truth, a lot of the church defecting from truth, here's something I think we need to remember. Here's the last of our three peculiarities about the church. Listen, the church is the only entity whose purpose is to strive to save their enemies. The church is the only entity whose purpose is to strive to save their enemies. Now, the world is divided into two groups. We just read that earlier in Colossians 1, 21 to 23. You were once alienated from God and were enemies. So if you're not God's friend, you're God's enemies. That's what we're told about the last days. Perilous times will come because people will be lovers of themselves and haters of God. And that's what the world has always been divided in. That's what Jesus said. You're either for me or 
against me. You're either my friend or you're my enemy. And what's he called the church to do? Strive to save his enemies, who would be our enemies. There's no other group like the church. We're peculiar among all groups within the world. And we need to remember we're in the same chapter talking about the same subject that Paul is warning us to make sure that we embrace. And that is telling the world you're alienated from God. You're enemies of Christ and you need to be reconciled to him. And listen, the world is never going to achieve their goals because they have forsaken the only way that what their pipe dream is is possible. The Bible has prophesied about the days we live in as men being lovers of themselves, as I said, and haters of God. And the word hater there in 2 Timothy chapter 3, 1 to 5 means to act as an enemy. And that's how our world is operating now. Are Christian principles today seen as an enemy to the progressive way of thinking? Absolutely. Are we labels of bigots and haters because we believe the Bible? I mean, can you just imagine a time, I, I mean, I, I would have never dreamed we would get to this particular place that we are right now, even understanding and having taught through 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 5, multiple times, knowing the last days would be perilous. But I never thought that you would be considered a hater and a bigot because you thought there were two genders. Yeah. Or that inside a mother in her womb is a human child. I, I never thought it would reach. Have you seen the looks on some people's faces who are angry about? Did you hear about the guy uh, that was going to? I may have told you this last week. The guy that uh, was going to shoot up Brett Kavanaugh because of the Roe v. Wade thing. I mean, people have just lost it, and yet God says, "Reach them, reach them, all of them. Warn every man, teach every man." that every man may be presented in Christ Jesus to the Father is what's implied there. And listen, Romans reminds us in 10.16, but they've not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? Paul's conclusion is, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And listen, people may not, people are not all going to believe our message, but we're still called to warn and teach. And the few that hear will indeed accept the word of God as truth. We're going to have to labor and strive to do so, but I like where this ends, where Paul says, according to his working, which works in me mightily. You know what? We're not going to save anybody. Jesus saves. What we're told to do is warn and teach. Warn and teach. Warn and teach. And listen, I, I, there's so many examples in Scripture of, of that process uh, being employed by people that God has used mightily. And I love Acts chapter 2 and Peter's sermon. You know, I, I think it's just, again, it proves our second point too, that, that Christians are the only people that can actually change. Remember when Jesus was arrested? Remember when Peter was warming himself by the fire? Remember what Peter did watching at a distance three times? What did he do? He denied the Lord three times. Why? He was afraid of the crowd. But here we see at Pentecost, some 40 days later, filled with the Holy Spirit, he's saying, this same Jesus whom you crucified, God has made him both Lord and Christ. 
He's preaching because he's filled with the Holy Spirit. Are we filled with the Holy Spirit today? Then God can work through us mightily because it's his work. And he wants us to labor and strive with the power that he supplies to reach a lost and dying world and warn every man and teach every man that they can receive the finished work of Christ on their behalf and be saved. This is what the church is called to. We are the only entity in the world that will labor and strive to save people who hate them. And, you know, there's nice people who care about enemies. And, you know, there's people in, in a battle exchange where, you know, they care for the wounded of their adversaries and all those kind of things. But it's different with the church because this is our commission. All of us. We're all medics, so to speak. That's when the Lord said, go to the world and preach the gospel. That's that every man thing. To every creature. Because the hope of the world, the hope of any human being, the hope of any individual, of an eternal existence in the realm of God and the angels, or heaven, is through Jesus Christ and him alone. And this is why Satan is trying to get the church to do everything but preach the book. This is why Satan is trying to get us to bow to the demands of the world and, and remain silent. And listen, if we grow silent, then the church, as Jesus said, will be trampled underfoot by men, and it will be good for nothing. We have to preach the word. Even as Paul said in 2 Timothy 4, uh, when you know Timothy said, you know, or Paul said to Timothy, you know, the time's going to come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But he'd already told them what to do, preach the word. In and out of season. Preach the word. And that's what we're supposed to do. That we could warn every man and teach every man that we may present every man perfect or mature morally and spiritually in Christ Jesus. That is what we are here for. I mean, is anybody ready to go home? Yeah, yeah I think today would be just a stellar day for the rapture, don't you? It would be fabulous to, to just... Close your eyes and open them and you're looking at Jesus and looking around and seeing all the dead in Christ and the alive and remain meeting him in the air. That'd be fabulous. Uh, that'd be just beyond our wildest dreams and imaginations. But if it didn't and doesn't happen today, there's a reason for it. To warn. He said it three times. I'm not giving you any more hints. Warn. Every man teach every man that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. The only thing I can add to that is you peculiar people, go get them. Tell them about Jesus. Amen.